What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Unbroken Arrows. As always, I'm Catherine. And I'm Greg. And today we have Greg Wagner with us. Greg Wagner currently serves as the communications and marketing specialist and manager for the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. Each week he can be heard on radio, seen on local television in Omaha, and his posts can be found on several social media platforms. I think it's safe to say that promoting natural resources, conservation, and outdoor activities in Nebraska are his passion. And one of the primary goals of his blog is to get people, especially young ones, to have fun and spend time outside. What Greg promotes, I think, is in perfect alignment with what Catherine and I want to continue to promote on our Unbroken Arrows podcast. So welcome, Greg, and thank you for being part of our podcast. Hey, I appreciate it. Um, One of your recent blogs, Greg, shared uh, 16 ways to cure cabin fever. In a winter like this one, where we're experiencing a little bit warmer temperatures than, than normal, are there uh, any additional activities that people can get out and enjoy? You know, there are. There are always a lot of things to do in the great outdoors. And when we have a warm stretch here in the Cornhusker State like we've had, and it pretty much continues, I would tell you that it opens up our trails for fat tire biking. And I probably should have did more of that when I was younger. <laughs> because I might be pushing my bike up the hill and waving you around me. But um, this is the time of year uh, when we see, I call it the fall. It's a fall spring in February, the emergence of a lot of wildlife. Um, this is the time of year where we have in February uh, a lot of fur-bearing animals that are breeding. That's one thing I did not point out in that blog. Striped skunks right around Valentine's Day. We also have coyotes, foxes, possums, and coons. This is their time to mate and to breed, and they're ever more apparent, even sometimes catching glimpses of them into the late morning or late afternoon or early evening as our days get longer. So that's one thing. And, you know, another thing, too, is uh, bird watching. Um, Our birds have really now spread out. And they're ever more apparent. They're not congregated at your feeder because our ground cover is now mostly exposed. Our waters are opening up. But uh, a good time to bird watch. In the spring migration, by the way, is on in Nebraska. We right now have snow geese that are in the southern reaches of the Cornhusker State, specifically in the southeast corner of the state, spilling over from the Los Hills Refuge. A lot of snow geese. So, That is another thing that I have not pointed out. We have had a good push of waterfowl the last week and a half uh, here in Nebraska as well. So there's some really good waterfowl viewing opportunities as well. Okay, you alluded to a couple of different things that I want to touch on. Um, First off, um, yesterday was my mother's 96th birthday. So happy birthday a day late, Marguerite Pavlik. But uh, I went up to spend uh, part of the day with her in northeast Nebraska, and I saw something on the way home, so this was probably about 4.30 or so in the afternoon, that I've never seen before. And a bobcat ran across the road in front of me. So is, is are bobcats in that uh, um, group of animals that you talked about, is this their breeding season by chance? Well, first off, happy birthday. 
96 years young? Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Happy birthday, Mrs. Pavlik. And for Bobcats, uh, this is also their time of year, too, um, to do a little breeding and to establish their pair bonds. And they're ever more apparent as well. Late afternoons, if you crunch things down, really are the times when you need to be out, whether wildlife watching or you're doing one of our conservation orders, snow goose hunts, or you're going to call coyotes, do some predator calling. Late afternoons, as you alluded to, are the best times when wildlife really is kind of coming up from their daytime slumber. And they're getting ready to hunt for that time frame and then on into the evening. But we have more bobcats in Nebraska than you would know. We tag bobcats in our Omaha Game and Parks office. Our conservation officers tag bobcats. And here out of our Omaha office, we'll have probably about 30 bobcats a year that we'll tag here that have been harvested by hunters and trappers. And there's more of them than you know, even though they're very seclusive. I I did catch one on my game cam once, and it was actually probably one of the uh, uh, my favorite pictures that I did get or images that I did get captured. Um, and it was snowing, and um, it was moving through deep snow, and so it wasn't moving evidently too fast. And it uh, was an excellent image. The other thing I was going to ask was. Uh, and I meant to ask Catherine and her brother AJ about this last night because they're they're goose hunters. Also on the way back, I saw three very large, what I thought were geese or snow geese, uh, flying north. Which I, in February, I think that I thought that was pretty early. Not really. Our spring migration doesn't really start in spring. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it starts in late winter. And it's already underway with our warmer conditions and south, southeast, southwest winds a-blowing. So they can kind of fool you. Sometimes uh, in the course of a day, we'll have geese that'll work north, uh, and then they'll work back south. They might, they're going to work up to the snow line, probably not going to go beyond it. They're looking for exposed grain fields to feed on waste grain and open water where they can roost at night. So they're, they're just kind of really working. You're seeing a lot of scouting flocks right now. And you might be saying to yourself, why are they flying east? Why are they going north? Well, this is the time of year when they're really kind of feeling things out. Uh, the scout flocks for the main big flocks that are yet to come. Sure. And the crown jewel in Nebraska bird watching, uh, the cranes, sandhill cranes, when are, when are they going to be at uh, full peak migration? Well, we normally see them about now. I haven't had any indications of that, but we probably do have some cranes along the central Platte River Valley between Grand Island and Kearney specifically. When to go see all the cranes? We start seeing viewable numbers of sandhill cranes where there's plenty around to see along that Platte River Valley about the first week of March. I tell people best time to go around St. Patrick's Day, mid to late March. The migration is pushed back a little bit in these last few years with its peak of about 600,000 birds. But it is so cool. I can't even describe it on the radio. It's one of the world's largest gatherings of birds. We will have 600,000 or so sandhill cranes visit that Platte River Valley between Grand Island. It stretches all the way to Ogallala, but mostly between 
GI and Kearney, that's where the birds are going to be in that 40-mile stretch of the plat, and they'll just be packed in there. Sights and sounds are deafening, and there's a lot of neat viewing spots along that Platte River stretch uh, publicly. So there's chances to get out of your vehicle, stretch your legs. And it's really one of those things where it's a bucket list item. And as Midwesterners, you should have it on your bucket list and then be able to cross it off. Go see all the cranes, take the kids and the grandkids. And that's one of those things as a native Nebraskan. We never, or I should say, I have never made a special trip to do that. I've seen them and observed them several different times, but it, you you talk about the sounds. That is some of the most unique oh, sound um, pretty crazy. That, that I've ever heard. And, and, and when you get those numbers, oh my goodness. Yes. My wife grew up, my lovely wife, Polly, of 38 years, grew up at Wood River, Nebraska, just west of there. So she's in that stretch between Grand Island and Kearney. And she's like, meh, cranes, meh, big <laughs> <Yeah>. deal, meh. <laughs> and so I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm from Grandin, Nebraska. No, no, that's a big deal. So, you know, we, we made sure to visit grandma and grandpa quite a bit out there. And especially in mid to late March. You guys have a um, fall crane season, don't you? No, no, we do not. No. No, and I'll, I'll address that. And people ask us, you know, wow, Kansas is hunting them, Oklahoma's hunting them, Texas is hunting them. In the fall, the cranes fly over us. And they're in small groups of about seven to 10 birds, roughly. And they're very seldom seen. So what few birds would be shot would not outweigh the anti-sentiment that would be directed toward this agency, uh, the Game and Parks Commission, for having a hunt where a few would benefit and the great many would despise and hate us. And you might say, well, biologically, you could do it. Yeah, we could. But we don't want to do it. We're a spring staging area. Nebraska is unique. And we believe that we don't need that anti-public sentiment. What few birds would be shot would, again, not outweigh the negativity that would be directed toward the hunting community or the Game and Parks Commission. So uh, we're a big time spring stopover. And I tell people, do you have a good camera? Shoot them with your camera. Sure. Now, is that kind of, I'm going off topic here now too, but the number of permits issued for uh, elk are limited, correct? They're limited. They're climbing. Okay. They're climbing, largely available, obviously, to residents. They're climbing. Uh, We have elk mostly in the northern tier of Nebraska and in the western portion of the state. And didn't they have a... A special hunt, like in July or August, a few years back, uh, somewhere north of the Platte River. I used yes. to live in Ogallala. Like and, a call? Yep. Yeah. And, and yep. that was a unique yes. thing. And that was, were they doing damage to crops? Oh, uh, yeah. That would, that's oh, yeah. what it was? Okay. Yeah. I will tell you that one one of the things we pride ourselves here at Game and Parks in doing is that we are we are responsive. We're government acting quickly. And we had this unique scenario come up where these elk were trampling uh, mature crops. Uh, They were eating them, trampling them, bedding in them. You know, the kitchen and the bedroom were one and the same. And it was out of control because the elk, they were in herds. And so we had to act quickly. 
and we did. And we had a specialized hunt out there and a drawing for permits. They're a public resource. And we told the landowners, hey, you're going to have to work with hunters on this and open it up and everything else. And it worked pretty well. It was a kind of a one and done thing. And uh, we pride ourselves again on being responsive. You might say, well, gosh, you're catering to private landowners. 97% of Nebraska is private. Sure. Unlike a lot of other states, we have to be responsive to those landowners that are feeding and managing wildlife as well as their crops and their livestock. Another blog that you uh, wrote recently talked about foraging for edible wild plants. And in that blog, you made a point that um, it is not just a spring activity. And uh, that's something that, for me, I think really the only thing that I foraged are probably morel mushrooms. And that's a springtime, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. a springtime mm-hmm. um, edible um, mushroom that's a unique place uh, to find. Not to be confused with shrooms. No, that's right. Yes, that's right. A, yes. <laughs> But uh, the that's something I'd like to get into a little bit more in terms of being able to forage. But so, what are some of the suggestions suggestions that you have for someone like me that would want to become more involved? Well, they think I'm the foraging expert at Game and Parts, but I don't know about that. I I always tell some of the younger biologists maybe I'm the Yule Gibbons, and they kind of look at me funny, like who's that? <laughs> yeah, Catherine but, uh, probably I, would miss that one. Yeah, too. I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> That's okay, but I'm the forager, and I've done a lot of it. And um, my grandfather on my mom's side taught me all these things. He said, you know, if you're going to be a, a very good hunter especially you need to know the woods you need you need to know the trees you need to know the plants you need to know you know if you're compromised in a situation what you can eat what you can't um there's more than just morels and that's a great point that you brought up even this time of year um that's the blog i did in the winter we have wild edible plants out there we have cattails all parts of the cattail are edible they're survival food um you can even go into all kinds of other things like rose hips and the sand hills. I've picked them in January and my wife has made jelly out of them. Really good jelly. Um, and then, you know, I could go on and on, but it's a year round thing here in Nebraska. So I would tell you, even with spring that's forthcoming and everybody's geared into morels. I'm like, well, have you tried the dried saddle? They're like, what? Yes, we have the pheasant back mushroom, and it's a really cool mushroom. It grows alongside or in the same locations as morel mushrooms, and I would encourage people to read up on that. But more so, people ask me, how do I really get to know these other wild edible plants, you know, fungi and everything else? I tell people, link up and go with somebody that you know and trust who does it, There's more of those people out there than you know. Attend one of our outdoor education workshops uh, that we do. And I've done some of them in the spring and in the late summer and in the fall and also in the winter. We have those available. And obviously through the internet and technology, go to those reputable websites um, that you know and trust, whether it's ours at Nebraska Game and Parks Commission, the Missouri Department of Conservation, friends of mine at Missouri have some really extensive information on wild edible plants and fungi as well. Those are some of the tips that I would give you. When in doubt, throw it out, don't eat it. 
there are lookalikes on some of these um, mushrooms and other wild edibles. And when in doubt, don't eat it. When in doubt, throw it out. But uh, if you can really hook up with somebody, maybe it's an old timer in the area, somebody like me, um, 60 plus, we've been around a while. We know what to look, where to look, and we know what we're picking. And that's that's a that's good advice. But I'm one of those sixty plus people, and one of the things that we want to try to do with our podcast is, uh, I worked for uh, thirty plus years in education, and um, during that time, the the more I became involved with coaching, and then I was into uh, administration, my time in the outdoors. Um, decreased. So one of the things that I'm trying to to do right now, I'm trying to get reengaged in those activities that I used to do when I was younger. So, um, you know, I would depend on the the youth probably of of the area that uh, might be hopefully leading these types of workshops and getting involved as well. So, but that's great advice, and I know that the sometimes the workshops uh, through the game and parks. Uh, are available, but um, do are you aware of like any classes like in, in Omaha Metro Community College or any place like that? Are there any classes that uh, people could take, um, maybe even in a non-credit type thing or a, uh, a continual learning type setting? Yes, yeah. The University of Nebraska at Lincoln um, does have some of those available. My friend Iris. Uh, down there at UNL on the East Campus School of Natural Resources, probably is sharper on foraging than I am anymore. And so there are uh, some of those types of things available there. Also at the Hitchcock Nature Center across the river in Iowa, north of Omaha, um, there are those types of things available up there as well, our friends across the river in Iowa. I think the most my foraging experience has gone is those little green clover things that grow like all over yep. and are kind of sour. Sure. Yeah, clover's edible, sure. Dandelions are edible, clover's edible. I did a blog, I think it was last year, on weeds. And I said, it's not a bad four-letter word. And I'm going to tell you what's legal about weed. <laughs> <laughs> and I did I did a whole thing on on edible weeds. And I included clover. I included dandelions and basically in your backyard. Um, and people are like, oh, my gosh. And you just got to make sure they're not sprayed with toxic chemicals. There's not a road close by. Uh, and there's not dog excrement or pet excrement on them. And you'll be good. You'll be fine. And in these uh, foraging or the the types of foraging that you do, do you include like um, tubers and and the forbs? Like I'm thinking, uh, Jerusalem artichoke is one that I've I've read about mm-hmm. that I would like to mm-hmm. uh, harvest and and try to cook because those are prepared similar to a potato. Is that correct? Correct, correct, and yes. Uh, it's all inclusive. And what I've done hands-on type outdoor educational functions, um, we're identifying the trees. You, get, you need to know the trees, the grasses, the flowers. You need to know all the plants. Right. It makes you it makes you an all-around better outdoor enthusiast, a more knowledgeable one. And those are signs, you know, you'll see signs uh, of drought. You might see signs of climate change. You might see 
signs of an animal that you thought you didn't have, but you have on that piece of property. But um, absolutely, you need to know everything and we'll point everything out. We'll even look for shed deer antlers out there as well. That was the next thing I was going to ask you about. There you go. Perfect lead. Yeah, there you go. I'm an, I am an avid rabbit shed antler hunter. That's awesome. Have you been out yet this year? Yes. What, uh, <laughs> how early would you like tell people to start walking? Well, a lot of research has been done at the university of Nebraska at Kearney on shed antlers. So, and I cheat because I use trail cameras or game cameras. Mm-hmm. I know when my bucks are starting to drop and normally we start seeing drops in late January. I've seen them as early as late December, but really it's about now. It's about now when you can get the jump on the competition, if there is any, where you're hunting and go out and look for shed deer antlers. You might ask me, well, Greg, what, what's the best time? And we see more shed antlers, whether it's whitetail or mule deer and elk in Nebraska in March. March is the month. And I would tell you to push it a little bit and get toward mid-March. And that's a good, very good time for shed antler hunting, whether it's mule deer, white-tailed deer, or elk. Where are your, like, I don't want to say go-to spots, um, but like fence lines um, by food plots? Mm-hmm. Like, where would you tell people to start looking? Any place where a deer, and we have white-tailed deer in all 93 Nebraska counties, so we'll focus on them. Any place where they have to jump or jolt. So I'm looking at main trails, um, whether in the woods or in a field, especially where they abut fence lines, where that deer has to jump or squeeze through. I'm looking there. I'm also looking where main deer trails cross creek bottoms, where they've got to jump a little bit. I'm looking in ravines where you've got a trail that's pretty jagged. They're going down, they're trying to get down. And I'm looking there. I'm also looking near their bedding areas, very key areas. These, basically what I call day beds, they don't change. On our farm, we own about 2,000 acres. So on our farm, they don't change. We know where they are. They don't change. We don't like to bump deer out of them in the daytime, but they're around there. And these are sheltered areas, mostly on south slopes, exposed to the sun, with a lot of cedar trees or thickets around them. And when a deer has one antler on and one antler that's been shed and dropped, it's very uncomfortable. That buck is really uncomfortable and it's going to try everything it can to get rid of that other antler that's on the verge of being molted. So we find, we have found a lot of matching sheds normally within about 150 yards of each other um, in the same general area. And so what they'll do is they're going to look for lower hanging branches, thickets and limbs, and they're going to shake when they get in there. And oftentimes in the midst of a cedar grove, I'll find a shed antler that'll match one I found maybe a hundred yards away. Hmm. What about deadheads? What does Nebraska have for rules on deadheads? Cause I, we talked about deadheads in our last podcast and I wasn't I think quite what you sure. Mean by, what you mean by deadheads found a deer dead, right? Yeah. Yep. About, skull with yep. antlers. Right. You're allowed to possess the skull and the antlers of that deer, as long as that deer does not bear shot marks, as long as there are no visible shot marks. 
Um, and I always tell people the best thing you can do on that situation is to contact the local conservation officer to say, hey, I found this deer. You don't have any cases pending or you're not looking for anything around this or, you know, so-and-so, nobody lost a deer. That's always a good idea to do as a follow-up. You don't need to get a um, no. salvage tag or a permit or anything. No, the, the roadkill salvage tags are just that. They're for the meat and deer um, or antelope or elk hit on the road. So for all of our South Dakota listeners, South Dakota is a little bit different. I ended up calling GFP last week to double check. But if you find a deadhead on public land, it is illegal to possess. Um, you don't have to call it in or anything. You just legally cannot take it. And then if you have a deadhead on private ground, you do have to get a permit. So GFP, one of their officers will come out, take a look at it, make sure nothing's suspicious. Um, and give you a tag. The other thing is if it's over a certain trophy limit in South Dakota, they will posi- they will confiscate that deadhead and they usually really? raffle. Yeah, huh. they um, do like a fundraiser and auction them off. Okay. And you are allowed to pick up and take home shed deer antlers on any Game and Parks Commission owned or controlled property in Nebraska. Yep, same for that South Dakota. Part, yep. So you, I don't, we don't care, don't care what size they are or whatever, but, you know, a deer skull with antlers, you know, that the coyotes are probably eating, not bearing any shot marks, that that can be in Nebraska, that could be legally possessed. That's awesome. always a good thing to do to follow up with the CO, the conservation officer. Very cool. Um, that's the other only other only other thing I was going to ask you is if you tried to stay out of those bedding areas so that deer don't get pushed around, but it sounds yes. like, yeah. Yeah. Yep. We'll, we know from our cameras, use, use trail cameras, people. They're fun. Even if you can only afford one or two, we look at them in real time. Now we have more fun with them and watching TV. Um, we, we see all kinds of things on them, but we use those, the game cameras, the trail cameras that are real high tech now. And, um, they tell us, you know, when deer are moving, they tell us if deer have shed antlers, if those bucks are bachelored up this time of year, um, they indicate a lot of things. We have cameras on the trails that lead into the bedding areas, but not in them. Yeah, you'd never want to bump deer out of their bedding areas because those don't change year-round. They really don't. Do you do any scouting then for turkeys while you're out shed hunting? Absolutely. I am also an avid turkey hunter, spring, and I love it. Nine times out of ten, that bird with a brain the size of a pea has outwitted me. I know, it's crazy. (laughs) They talk about bird-brained, but I don't know. Um, So... But anyway, yes, this is a great time of year to scout, especially in the eastern or central parts of Nebraska. The home ranges of our turkeys are not as long as those out in the west are in the western part of the state are Merriam's based birds. But this is the time of year you need to get to know individual flocks. You could get to know individual birds. Here comes our, our game cameras, our trail cameras again. And because ours are running year round, 24-7, year round. You might ask, Greg, how many do you guys have up? Nine. Okay. Nine. 
And so we're having a ball with them. We're having fun. But we know what's happening with turkeys with the flocks. But nothing is better than getting out and scouting for them, at least getting on some of the minimum maintenance roads or safely along some of the county roads and glassing and listening, whether the turkeys are going to go to a roost uh, at night or coming out of that roost, making a ruckus in the mornings. Um, I would, people ask me when they want to come to Nebraska to turkey hunt, you know, what are some of the things that I should gear into? Well, wooded creek bottoms, wooded river and creek bottoms are real quintessential. Cottonwood trees, cottonwood trees are number one roost tree by research in Nebraska, ponderosa pines in the West. But those big old cottonwoods, if I've got a, maybe a little grove of them, seven or eight, they're probably at least a hundred years old or older. Those turkeys, bar none, are using those as roost trees. They love those. They also like American elm trees, real tall old ones that survived the Dutch elm disease as well. But get out, look, listen. Don't be intrusive. Don't bust up flocks. Don't scare them. You know, you don't need to be standing where you're going to put your blind looking around going, I don't see any birds. You don't want to do that. You need to have at least an idea and quiz your farmers and ranchers on the pathways they're using to feed this time of year. And you can really glass and see what you have for numbers. Don't bust up and things will change, but at least you'll have an idea of the core of that flock and kind of the pathways or their habitualness as far as their daily movements are concerned. And you're talking mainly um, Easterns, correct? In Nebraska, don't let anybody tell you we have pure strains anymore they're all convoluted yeah i don't know if you know that or not that's true it's similar to south dakota similar to south dakota so what we have in the east we we have merriam's hybrids some in the north we have mostly eastern hybrids along the missouri river in the eastern third of the state Um, we have rio hybrids rio grand hybrids in southwest nebraska i've shot some of them um, with dna that we did on them and the northern tier of Nebraska has Merriam's birds or Merriam's hybrids. And then in the panhandle of Nebraska, our panhandle, predominantly Merriam's birds. We have turkeys in all 93 Nebraska counties. So we did this research. Does the subspecies matter when I got a big gobbler I'm working come in? No. Bam. Boom. What? No are some of the differences um, and behaviors that you've noticed between like all of these different species, especially the There's hybrids? Not. There's not much. There's not. A turkey is a turkey. My friend, Dr. Michael Chamberlain, one of the foremost experts on turkeys in this country will tell you, not really, not really. Some of their gobbling activity is a little bit different and perhaps maybe um, some of their flock dynamics are a little bit different, but by and large, you know, and I was talking to Luke Maduna, our big game specialist, turkey's a turkey. It's going to do what it's going to do. And, and that's how it is. So when I'm hunting out West, I don't change my tactics at all. I'm, I'm hunting Rio hybrids or I'm hunting Merriam's hybrids. I'm not changing them from Gretna, Nebraska to Eustis, Nebraska. I'm not changing, not changing what I do. Not, not at all. Not are, for turkey hunting. Are there any tips? We did a, a one of our podcasts. We did cover kind of a turkey 101 just because in the spring uh, when the hunting seasons start to wind down, it's something that people can start to, to gear up for, or ramp up for is turkey hunting and practicing your calls and, and those types of things. 
are what are some of the in in your opinion the most important things to try to get more proficient at with regard to hunting that bird with a pea-sized brain spending more time outdoors hunting them i hunt them with a bow i hunt them with a shotgun here in nebraska i tease people in south dakota say oh yeah you got more pheasants I got more turkeys down here. I really do. I got a lot more birds. But anyway, so um, with our turkeys, I would say uh, do practice calling. Calling is a little overrated. Most of the newbies that I go with will overcall. It's like, you know, the turkey's going, I'm like, stop, stop. But uh, use your calls sparingly. Have a variety of calls. I love my slates. I'll have a raspy box with me, but my diaphragms are probably my go-to calls. But if I, I have a bird hanging up, doesn't really want to come in, not really to my decoys and not, I'm in my blind, he's not wanting to come in, I'll switch calls and do some soft yelps on a slate. And about nine times out of 10, I got that gobbler running. Um, on decoys, you get what you pay for. I do use decoys and use real decoys, um, the most realistic decoys, that is. I use Dave Smith decoys. Mm-hmm. I use Avian X decoys. Um, real, very realistic decoys. Don't skimp on the price of a decoy. Yes, we hunt from blinds. Absolutely, we're hunting from blinds, especially with kids and newbies, no question. Early in the season when I'm bow hunting, that group of, of decoys that you're positioning needs to look like a small flock. You need to put all your decoys out there that you have. And I'll have probably about 10 of them out in in the early portion of the season for archery. When we shift gears mid to late April for shotgun, I'm, uh, I'm probably not going to put out many decoys at all. I tell everybody, let the birds dictate what you do. Let them tell you what to do. If they're talking, you talk. If they shut up, you shut up. And that, that's how it goes. Let them dictate to you what you're going to do. And late in the season, I get into May, beyond May Day, I probably don't have any decoys out. I don't have any. I'm just calling. The, the last couple of years, um, I have taken Catherine turkey hunting in Nebraska. And the first year that we went, the weather was, and this would have been right when it opened uh, archery season. Mm-hmm. And, and the weather was fairly decent, and um, we we saw some birds, heard more than we saw. Um, and then last year, there was still quite a bit of snow on the ground. It was cold. And mm-hmm. um, so what are the factors that are going to impact when they start to break up from those big groups? Hunt the bluebird days. That's what I tell people. We play the weather. We don't hunt on inclement weather days. We do not. I'm going to hunt a beautiful day. And you might say, well, Greg, can you define that? And your archery season opens March 25th. What does what does that day look like if, if it's going to be a good turkey day? Oh, maybe a day like, you know, today down here in Nebraska. Highs in the upper 50s, slight wind. I need a little bit of wind. Little, not, not a, I don't like everything still. Little bit of wind, ground cover almost entirely exposed my fields exposed um that's what i'm looking at i hunt bluebird days what's my ultimate day to turkey hunt high in the low 70s just a slight 
slight bit of wind and a beautiful bluebird day with the birds singing, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot a gobbler. <laughs> and what we do is we're, we've roosted our birds. We know where they roost. That's another thing. You don't bump deer in their beds and you don't bump turkeys out of the roost trees ever. Most people will try to set up too close to them. You need to be at least about 125 yards or more away from them. And so we're set up when they're going to come down, they're going to shake the doldrums off a little bit and they'll talk a little bit and then they get silent. And that's now, now I gotcha. And they may come into your decoy silent, mostly in the early archery part, they do. Um, and one of the things that we're doing is that um, when they're on the roost, they're talking to us. Once they'll gobble back, they know you're there. They know you're there. So you don't need to, you can gobble or you can use your hen yelps a couple more times and some plucks and stuff, but then you stop. They know you're there. They know they're probably going to come off that roost and they're, they know you're there. And then you, when they come off and they're silent, you be silent. Sure. You got to watch. That's the, that's the thing that, uh, and I've only been turkey hunting for a few years, but that time that you're describing that when they are coming off the roost and they're talking a little bit, that part of the morning, you know, just prior to that, you know, the oh, world's the waking up, the, the, the birds are starting to, to, to uh, sing and you start to hear oh. some of the different things that is. To me, you just kind of forget that you're hunting sometimes. Exactly. You are so right. It is the awakening of nature. It's one of the things of why I love turkey hunting so much. And I always tell people the first gobbles I'll hear with our spring seasons. It's like, okay, take me now. I'm ready. So it's one of the last sounds I want to hear before I pass this earth. It's I'm ready. And it's just some, I don't know how to explain it. And you're right. You're hearing that sound. You maybe have a little bit of a fog. You know, you're, the sunlight's not penetrating through yet. The birds are starting to sing. You might have some deer out in front of you looking at your turkey decoys like, what are those? Um, but it, it's just awesome. That spring turkey hunting morning, whatever you know, weapon you have, firearm or, or bow, it's awesome. Right. It, it, I was hooked the first hunt. Can you shoot here. turkeys out of the roost in Nebraska? No. I didn't think I, so. I'll be just blunt. No. Yeah, I didn't mm -mm. think so. No. No, I tell people, you know, with turkey hunting, you need to know the ins and outs and everything else. You need to know the ethics. And No, you cannot. No, get, get on the ground. Get like the rest of us. You can buy a cheap blind. You don't have to be fancy. Um, we put some carpeting down with the kids. So when I drop my calls, I can find them. And a um, couple decoys and call. And the fun of the spring hunt is to call them in. Right. We will not, we do not pass shoot birds. We will not pass. We will only shoot birds we have called in, decoyed. And that's, we're a little, we're a little snobbish like that. <laughs> we're not great callers or anything. And you don't have to be a great right. caller. Right. That's one of the things that I've learned as well, because I am not a great caller, but you, you mentioned that they, they know where you're at or they know that you're there. And one of the first times I called a bird in, it was just one call and it probably came from 50 or 60 yards away and then um, stopped like 10 feet in front of me. And looking was looking like, right oh, at me. Where are the girls? Yeah, yeah it, it it had no it had no um, 
doubt as to where I was or where that sound came from. So Yes, and spring turkey hunting represents one of the fastest growing outdoor lifestyles. Ice fishing is one of them in the country. Spring wild turkey hunting is another one. The trouble that a lot of us with our turkeys are dealing with, we're dealing with lower bird numbers, bird numbers that we did not have 10 to 15 years ago. Anybody from about Nebraska, if you make a line across the country and go south, we're all dealing with lower numbers of turkeys, and it's a big question mark. Everybody points to nest predators and climate change and weather, and everything. it comes down to habitat, number one. But um, we're currently researching that with University of Nebraska and Lincoln students. And that was my next question, because just in the in the time that I've hunted, I've noticed um, and just before I even hunted, the the times you see turkeys uh, in the wild, whether you're, you know, while you're driving either country roads or even highways. But uh, mm-hmm. I've seen a noticeable decrease in yes. in the total numbers. So that is, that's, that is that's real. That's not something. That is real. And people will say, well, in Omaha, for example, where I'm based, there's lots of turkeys in town. How do you, what do you tell me there's lower numbers? Well, what we call our town turkeys, those numbers have remained stable and maybe slightly increased. Uh, but in the countryside where there's more factors they've got to deal with, our numbers on those birds are down. And I don't know what South Dakota is like, but Nebraska, Iowa, and uh, I mean, our neighbors to the West, uh, you get in, you get into Colorado, Wyoming, their numbers are down. Kansas is down. My friends in South Carolina, their numbers are down. Georgia's down. And so we're all like, why can what's what's happening here? What is so widespread that has dropped our numbers? And that's what we're uh, researching at UNL big time. And you did say though that the number of turkey hunters has increased, but that's not mm-hmm. not that's not uh, would be uh, that right. would not be a factor per se in this right. decrease. That is correct. And we we took um, one of the permits that you're eligible to get away last year. This will be our second year of giving you two permits uh, to take basically bearded birds in the past, beyond two years ago, three years ago, you could take three. So we dropped that. We put a non-resident quota on the number of permits coming. And we said, you can't shoot two birds at one time. You can shoot one bird one day and one bird the next, which none of us at Turkey hunt want to get done anyway that quick. Um, and I've encouraged hunters too, to just be selective. Sure. Just be selective. And, you know, it's what, would I shoot a bearded hen? No, no, I let them go. Oh, I don't want to shoot a bearded hen. They can bear live young like any other hen can. They just have an appendage of, of feathers. They just have a beard. Sure. One in 10 in Nebraska have beards. So I tell people, you might pass on those. It's legal. No one's going to condemn you for being legal and shoot one with a youth or somebody else. And what's interesting, too, is in the early portion of the archery season in Nebraska, opening up March 25th, the first couple of weeks, it's better to shoot a jake than a big gobbler. You know why that is? Nope. Because the jakes are not effective at breeding. Oh, okay. Not like the big gobblers are. They're effective. They're very effective in that breeding phase early on. And it's a bird you really don't want to take out. And here comes some of the research on that, too. So almost better to shoot a jake. And Mother Nature creates a surplus of those jakes anyway, a surplus of those young male birds. 
So then that was my next question is that is one of those topics then uh, of research with regard to uh, the declining numbers that the possibility of mature um, um, toms Mm -hmm. are being harvested at a higher rate than say the jakes are. Yes, at at a critical juncture. Mm-hmm. Yep, for breeding. But we're also looking at nest predators, which is a hot topic. You know, we're looking at what weather extremes are happening. Drought, we know, has had an impact negatively on a lot of our upland game birds, of which the turkey is the largest one. So there, there's a lot of factors. Um, Dr. Michael Chamberlain, again, this foremost expert in the nation, you should have him on your podcast on turkeys. I would, he'll tell you it's a death of a thousand cuts. It's, we think it's a combination of a lot of factors that have all aligned and happened over the course of a few years. Bang. Well, and and regardless whether you're, I think you're talking turkeys or pheasant or deer, any along those things, it is. It's it's a complex web because the factors are multiple, and and the types of things that the wild animals are encountering uh, vary day to day, maybe hour to hour, mm-hmm. but, but year to year for sure, with regard to mm-hmm. drought and abundance of food or lack thereof. So. Yep. Habitat is the key. There's no question about that. Food, water, cover space. How much of it? Is there an ample amount of it? Um, there, there's a lot and, and it varies with species. Obviously we're dealing with lower deer numbers in Nebraska as well. Um, so it's not just the turkeys that are on the low side. Our deer numbers are lower as well. We don't have the deer that we had 10 to 15 years ago, nor do we want the number of white-tailed deer right. that we had if you're farming or right. ranching 10 to 15 years ago. And, uh, yeah, I, I think we want to maybe uh, – there are a couple of different topics that, that we want to expand upon, and, and hopefully maybe we might be able to uh, uh, find time in the future to have you on our podcast again. But one of the things sure. that that I want to mention is that you uh, are in your 45th year of working at the Nebraska Game and Parks, and, and congratulations on that. That. That well, is thank quite you. An I couldn't get a job anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. If I any drive-through, I'd be fired anyway for the second person through. <laughs> but yeah. I've only worked for one place all my life, you guys. Yeah, that's a, that's 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 an accomplishment. But I mean, and I and think. I think I think. <laughs> well, and a compliment to you, though, also is that I, I'm again born and raised in Nebraska, and I think that anybody that. Uh, if you mention the Nebraska game and parks, uh, the name Greg Wagner uh, is recognizable, and you oh you you have uh, uh, had I think a tremendous impact on the uh, uh, outdoor activities and and promoting the outdoors in Nebraska. the The question I have for you is. I, I was in education for thirty plus years, and I remember being a, a rookie teacher. And talking to veteran teachers that have taught 30, 35, 40 years uh, and and just thinking about the changes that they've seen over those years of teaching. And I'm sure that those same types of changes have occurred in the Nebraska game and parks. Are there any that really jump out at you that are just major differences, major improvements, things that they either positive, negative? Uh, yeah. I would say first, thank you for the kind words. Again, I probably wouldn't get a job anyplace else, but um, I'm one of these people that 
you know, I'm, you can teach this old dog any new tricks. And I learn from our younger biologists and I stay open-minded because it, it's a constant learning environment in the outdoor world, in the environmental world. It totally is. I'm a farm kid from Gretna. I've been here for a long time, but I mean, you could teach me new things. One of the things as I go back, you know, in history, uh, that's obviously changed. It's just like in the teaching world is technology. And you might say, well, Greg, you probably don't like that as an old schooler, do you? And I go, I do. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. You'll see me probably too many places. But, and I blog, but no, I'm like, embrace it. This, this is the future. Here we are. Here we are on a podcast. I love it. I love it. And embrace it. I think for the outdoor community, they're more engaged than they ever have been. And they're not afraid to ask questions. They might've been afraid to come in to talk to the old gravelly Greg Wagner, but now they'll just email him a question or they'll send him a personal message on Facebook or they'll ask him on Facebook or X or, or whatever. But um, so I think with the information superhighway, the audience is more engaged than ever. I think even with conservation, they're more politically engaged than they ever have been. It's instant news and instant everything. Um, I think our officers have had to deal with neighborhood apps a lot where someone says, I saw a coyote in my backyard and had a rabbit in its mouth. What do you, what do you, what are you going to do about it? But that's okay. It's a chance to, yeah. It's a chance to inform and educate, isn't it? So I'm the embracer of these things. I'm not the person saying I'm not doing that or we don't need to do that. But I will tell you that I still think the, you know, the best way to learn is hands-on in the field. And I, I, I will do, and I do do a lot of that with school children or outdoor education workshops. It's the best. You can take your technology with you, take your phone, take pictures of it. If we don't know it, we'll identify it when we get back. But so that's kind of how I view things. And I don't ever want to be looked at as the old war horse. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to go to a meeting and it's you're constantly learning. Not a week passes when I don't learn something from all of you, whether it's podcasters or the public. I'm, I mean, I'll have somebody baffle me with a question, which I love because that is how you learn, in my opinion. It's like, oh, just when I thought I had all the questions answered. You know, I had a guy from Tennessee ask me, can I hunt pheasants from a hot air balloon? Well, I've never had that one. He goes, I'm serious. <laughs> what was the answer? That. Yeah, what is the answer? I got to know. The, the answer, it was, it was a conveyance, and the answer was no. Mm. And the FAA said no. <laughs> well, we had to really research that one. You think he you could? Ground crew and dogs and everything. I'm like, really? Huh. And the answer was no. The FAA said no because he's too close to the treetops and power lines, and uh, evidently, so he can shoot pheasants. They told him no. So you think like so, in Texas, you know how they shoot hogs out of a helicopter? I bet you could hog hunt out of a hot air balloon. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> you might ask me, you might ask, do you have hogs in Nebraska? No. Do we want them? No. no yeah. Absolutely. Positively not. No. And in fact, we have Sam Wilson is our carnivore biologist or basically our mountain lion and fur break specialist. But Sam is one of the foremost experts on the hogs in the country. So we have to farm him out a little bit, but 
everybody says, well, if you just, if you get them, you can just hunt them. Well, how's that working out in Georgia? How's it working out in Texas? Yeah. yeah. How's it working out in Alabama before them? No, thank it's you. It's not. Yeah. We, we don't want them. Our agriculture doesn't need them. But anyway, so the point is never dull moments. Sure. And a lot of dead, a lot of dead things and plants come into my office. I had a guy, you know, at one time, about three years ago, it goes, Hey, I got one of your critters in the back of my truck. I go, is a camper shell? Yeah. You just come out and look at it. You got any welding gloves? I go, oh, yeah. I look at it. It's a bald eagle with a crown on its head. It's going. Oh, no. Like, oh, okay. I need another officer here. With me. <laughs> <laughs> but there are never dull moments. And, and most people are well-intended and well-meaning for wildlife. And the few that are not, we'll visit you. We'll find you. Trust me. Well, we're we we're happy to say that that we do have um, people that listen to our podcast based upon the analytics that we've received that they uh, pretty much all across the country. So cool. regardless of whether um, it's a Nebraskan, a South Dakotan, or anybody just listening to our podcast, if they were interested in coming and visiting Nebraska, what would you suggest for them in terms of um, who to contact, uh, what to look for, and where to look for it. I would start with our website. Yeah, I'm starting with technology, outdoornebraska.gov. But I would tell you, right where we sit in this country, we are the mixed bag capital for fishing, hunting, kayaking. I mean, pick something. And you'll meet some of the nicest folks you'll ever meet here in Nebraska, as you would in South Dakota or any of the other Midwestern states. But uh, we have a little bit of everything in Nebraska. And if you think Nebraska's all flat, boring farmland with telephone poles, you're wrong. You ever been on the Niagara River and tubed it on a hot summer day or kayaked it? It's like you're in a mountain stream going, I can't believe I'm in Nebraska. But we have a lot of neat things that happen seasonally. We have 76 state parklands. Um, we're proud of our park system. Um, we have the resort park, Mahoney, the very western park, Fort Robinson. Um, and we have a little bit for everything and for families. And I would say, don't view us as a flyover state. We have a lot to offer here on the Great Plains in Nebraska. And get off the interstate because the interstate oh, uh, is a it's a yes. tr- tr- it's a tremendous route to travel. But yeah, you know, I, the Highway eighty ones and the Highway twos and the Highway twenties. Sure. Yep. There I, you go. The I can remember when we moved to Ogallala and made that trip back and forth, and and one of the times I I realized that somewhere around Sutherland, you know, if anybody asked me uh, where 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 do the sand hills of Nebraska begin, well. As you're driving on that path, you can look to the north of Interstate and say, "Right there, right there, perfect yeah, answer." You know, you and, and and it's and it's a totally different um, geography and yep. biology, ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I grew up in northeast Nebraska, which is full of hills and and trees Beautiful and streams, farmland, and, and, right? Yeah, hills and and, mm-hmm. and just don't don't gauge it by. By the interstate, so um, well put. So, well, I, honestly, I have probably three or four different topics that uh, I would like to to visit with you again that I did not uh, get covered here. So, and, I, and you're a busy man. So, maybe uh, a, a few months down the road, if it's sure. possible, could sure. we could we oh, maybe yeah. have you on I'll as a guest time. again? I'll make time. You bet. Absolutely. Well. 
If you or someone you know is thinking of suicide or in need of crisis intervention, call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. There are resources available to help. So to all of our listeners, take some time to get outside, get outdoors, and experience its healing powers. With that, on behalf of Catherine and me, until next time. <laughs>